Hi, and welcome to another Free Speech and Medicine podcast. This is the last in the speaker series introducing the speakers who will be appearing at our Free Speech and Medicine conference next week in Bedeck, Nova Scotia. I first heard of Dr. Ken Zucker back in 2015 when the story about his firing as the head of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, Gender Dysphoria Clinic, first broke. The story struck me as strange. At that time, he had 40 years of experience in the clinic, and as far as I could tell, he was being accused essentially of being anti-trans, one of the new heresies of the woke age. The clinic had existed for decades, and he had worked there forever, and being the head a good chunk of that time. They had a great reputation as leaders in the, until recently, very small field. What the heck had happened? Why would an anti-trans person volunteer to help gender dysphoric people for 40 years, many of whom did indeed go on to have surgery and hormone treatment? As Dr. Zucker mentions, well-known journalist Jesse Single did a very good bit of investigative journalism, which was critical in proving a number of the accusations written about Dr. Zucker in an external review, or was it a witch hunt, I'm not clear, were factually untrue untrue enough for him to win a large court settlement for wrongful dismissal. As an interesting aside, as I read more about the details of his case, I realized Dr. Zucker and I have a strange intermediary connection, which he alludes to at one point later in the podcast, one of those six degrees of Kevin Bacon things that gave me enough insider knowledge that even before Jesse Singles piece came out, it had me even more suspicious of the odd criticisms about Dr. Zucker. In-person in free speech and medicine attend, attendees may hear a little more about this connection, depending on how loose-lipped I feel at the time. Dr. Zucker didn't leave the field after his firing. He continues to see patients and edit the journal Archives of Sexual Behavior. In two years, he will have had 50 years of experience with gender dysphoria. I'm about 24 years into my medical career, and I'm considered an OG all I can say is hats off to Dr. Zucker. Very few clinicians have 50 years of experience in any field, let alone a highly specialized area like gender medicine. And most clinicians not in the field will only see an occasional gender dysphoric patient. So Dr. Zucker's perspective is truly singular. Who else in the world is in a better position to make sense of the rapid, strange, and divisive changes that first seeped and then flooded into the field of gender medicine in the last two decades. Who could better help us sort out truth from fiction, ideas from ideology, wheat from chaff, a process that is critical. If we submit to the radical forces advocating for automatic and rapid affirmation, we will hurt many patients. If we become reactionary, we risk throwing away years of essential acquired knowledge in the field. We can't forget that those with gender dysphoria are human beings who are struggling and need help. How do we best do that? There's a baby in the gender medicine bathwater that we should attend to as we try to pour out the dirt. And I think Dr. Zucker knows what that baby looks like. Dr. Zucker was fired in 2015 not for thinking that gender transition is always wrong, but simply for thinking it is often not right for those with gender dysphoria. He is guilty of having a balanced view. This makes him unfit to head a gender medicine clinic in the age of woke, but it makes him perfect to speak at free speech and medicine. Some of you listening will hear Dr. Zucker in person in Bedeck next week. You can still sign up for the conference at freespeechandmedicine.com. 
For those who don't make it, remember to stay tuned for online events later this year and early next, one of which will be a replay of Dr. Zucker's talk with live Q&A with him afterwards. Thanks very much again to him for speaking with me. Hello, Free Speech and Medicine podcast listeners. Thanks for tuning in to the last in our speaker series for 2023 Free Speech and Medicine Conference coming up soon in Bedeck, Nova Scotia. Uh, tonight, I have the great privilege of talking to Dr. Ken Zucker. Dr. Zucker is a man who I, I believe is maybe may the foremost expert in the, in the world on gender dysphoria, and I would certainly say in Canada. Now, he may, he may not want that title, but I'm going to give it to him honorarily tonight. Um, one of the reasons that we wanted Dr. Zucker at our conference to talk about this thorny issue is that he has a very long history in uh, that realm. Uh, many of us who have opinions on it, and I'd include myself in this, are somewhat reactionary. We didn't pay much attention until it kind of sprung onto the main media radar in the last few years. And then we've tried to d dive in and read as much as we can and get a sense of it. But Dr. Zucker has a sense of it from many years of work in it. And so I think he has an opinion that has to be very, uh, very respected. And we're so glad he's coming. So uh, Dr. Zucker, thanks very much for speaking with me tonight. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so first, maybe, you know, I alluded to how long you've been in this realm, but maybe you could tell us a bit about you, you know, where are you from? How did you get into uh, psychology? And, and then how did you get into this particular issue of gender dysphoria? Well, I uh, received uh, an undergraduate and master's degree in psychology in the States. And then I wound up doing my PhD in developmental psychology at the University of Toronto and received my PhD in 1982. My master's degree was in clinical psychology, and so I was always interested in clinical work as well. And when I moved to Toronto in 1975, I was aware of the Clark Institute of Psychiatry in Toronto, which at the time was the only research institute in Canada exclusively devoted to mental health. And I was interested in child and adolescent psychology. And in a completely serendipitous way, I learned that a child psychiatrist by the name of Susan Bradley had just started a gender identity clinic there for children and adolescents. And it was the seventies and I really knew absolutely nothing about the topic, but it sounded interesting to me. And when I was still in the States, I had read Richard Green's book sexual identity conflict in children and adults. And I found it interesting, although I really had no idea 
what it was really about. And so I met with Bradley in 1975, and she had just started the clinic along with a psychiatry resident and some other graduate students in psychology. And I joined the team, and at the time I had become much more interested in research. And so at the very beginning, the clinic tried to come up with a formal research protocol that would complement the clinical work. And although the Clark Institute of Psychiatry in part, had a very strong emphasis on research. Actually, there wasn't a heck of a lot of research going on in the child psychiatry program at large. And so uh, in an interesting kind of way, we developed a good reputation of a group wanting to integrate research with the clinical work. And so from the very beginning, uh, we combined the clinical care with uh, the research and the rest we might say is history. Um, we were actually really the first clinic in North America uh, at a in a hospital setting that uh, formalized doing research with children and adolescents who have what we now call gender dysphoria. Back then, it was called gender identity disorder, and I think by full. Um, over the years, we published many, many papers on various aspects of gender dysphoria. And because of that, at a relatively young age, uh, I was part of the revision to the DSM-3, which happened in 1987. The DSM-3 had been published in 1980. And then Bradley, me, and others were involved in the DSM-4 in 1994. And then I was the DSM-5 chair for the work group on sexual and gender identity disorders, which was published in 2013. And, and so maybe I'll just break in for one minute, just... Some of the listeners won't know what the DSM is, but it's the Diagnostic and Statistic, Statistical Manual for Psychiatry, which basically is the, the, the Bible, some people call it a psychiatry. What, what is an anxiety disorder? Well, if you want to know, you look at the DSM uh, three, four. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, as it's known. Um, and, uh, I would say that 
I think I was able to get involved in the DSM process because we had always been doing research, not just clinical work. And over the years, um, until the clinic closed in 2015, we probably saw maybe 1,500 or so children and adolescents. And since 2016, I've been in private practice. And since then, I've probably seen another 750, 800 patients. Wow. So you're in, you're well over 2000 patients with gender dysphoria that you've um, interacted with over the years. Correct. Yeah. Right. And, and I have to say too, I, I had thought your involvement went back to the 1980s, but it's actually the seventies. So you're in two years, you'll be 50 years involved with this subject. So that definitely makes you, is, is there anybody else in the world who's more experienced than you right now? Is there anybody? Um, I may be the only one who's, uh, well, there is a, a psychiatrist named Steve Levine in the U.S. who began working in the early 70s, but I'm probably the oldest person uh, who's had the experience with uh, children and adolescents. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So you've had this long, long, long history in this. Um, so things, many of us have felt a real what would you say, a real seismic change in this field in the last, well, 10 years, but especially five years. And gender dysphoria or, uh, you know, the, the idea of somebody who was trans was kind of, not, not fringe is the wrong word, but a rare thing um, that most of us as, a, as physicians, you know, even if we practiced our whole lives as a, say, a primary care physician, we might never have a a transgender patient, a gender dysphoric patient, a psychiatrist would deal with them occasionally. Um, you know, I think Julie said she's had a couple of patients through the years, but then suddenly just in the last number of years, this became front and center. You can't listen to the news for more than a few minutes without hearing about this issue. It seems to be every school has a number of kids who are identifying as, um, you know, the opposite sex. And it's a real, uh, very, very thorny problem, both for, for administrators at schools, for teachers, for parents, for, and not to mention the distress of the, the, the actual patient. So what's your thoughts? And I don't know if you, if you, you know, it's, it's not a long podcast typically, but can I even reasonably ask that? What do you, what do you think has brought this from being a rare issue to front and center just in a very short time? Uh, I can have a crack at that. Um, Back in the day, I used to write about how specializing in this area kind of was an outlaw activity within clinical psychology and psychiatry that most people either had no interest in the topic or um, had no experience in the area. And so those of us who worked in the field were considered kind of weird. Um, and you're right. Uh, you know, the number of patients that we would see was certainly not huge. And you couldn't compare it to 
kids say with ADHD or anxiety or depression. But during the 70s, 80s and 90s, we certainly saw enough children that we could cobble together a pretty good program of research. During those decades, um, however, we didn't see a lot of adolescence. So in the first few decades of my work, I focused more on children because we saw so many. So I would say since the early 2000s is when we started to see a real sea change in this population. Now, one factor that I think has played a role is the internet, that all of a sudden it was possible to have communication in a way that just one couldn't imagine uh, before the early 2000s. And I think that has been a factor, for example, in terms of creating awareness of gender identity in the general population. And I think the internet also helped create uh, or allow there to be more political considerations that were much harder to communicate. Um, I mean, if you think about the 1970s, we didn't have computers, we didn't have fax machines, we didn't have the internet. A lot of us didn't have voicemail just secretaries taking messages. So communication has become so much easier over the last 20 years. Um, another factor in the early 2000s or late 1990s that I think um, was associated with the increase in the number of adolescence that we were seeing is that in the 1990s a group from the Netherlands started to talk about the use of hormonal treatments for adolescents uh, with the idea that one way you could lessen the distress that adolescents were experiencing with regard to gender dysphoria was to put them on puberty blockers uh, or hormonal blockers, which would suppress their somatic feminization or masculinization. The idea that maybe that would lessen distress and give adolescents more time to think about how they were feeling. And that, uh, was something that interested us in Toronto because I think over the years we had evolved what might be called a developmental perspective on gender dysphoria development where 
we had the view that with younger kids, and by younger kids, I mean children as young as two or three years old that we might see in the clinic. Um, and I think our view for various reasons was that with young children, it was really too soon to prognosticate how they would wind up in terms of their gender identity. Whereas at the time, I think we felt that for adolescents, things were more likely to be consolidated or locked in. But back in the 80s and 90s, certainly no pediatric endocrinologists wanted to have anything to do with this population. And one was in sort of a holding pattern where one couldn't make a referral to an endocrinologist or to an adult gender identity clinic until the patient turned 18. But in the late 90s, we began to collaborate with an adult endocrinologist who was willing to put uh, adolescents on hormonal blockers if we thought it made sense. Um, and so for some of our adolescent patients, we began to recommend hormonal suppression as early as 1999 or 2000. And I think we were really the first group in North America to do that. Um, I think that over the past 20 or so years, um, there's been a gradual uh, lessening of stigma of people who have gender dysphoria, just like, let's say, in the 90s, late 80s, there was a lessening of stigma with regard to sexual orientation. And maybe that lessening of stigma resulted in more adolescents, for example, uh, coming out and telling their parents or contacting a clinician and saying that they think that they had gender dysphoria or were identifying as transgender and they wanted uh, help for it. And so in Toronto, we started to see this rather marked increase in the number of adolescents uh, being referred to the clinic. And if we accelerate up to the year 2023, it's now a worldwide phenomenon where large numbers of adolescents are being seen in specialized clinics uh, with numbers that are just notably larger than was the case uh, back in the day. Um, that increase has come with some interesting other developments. So for example, beginning in the mid 2000s, we started to notice a change in the sex ratio of the adolescents that we were seeing. Over many years, we always saw more boy children than girl children. Um, 
at a fairly marked difference. Uh, maybe three or four boys for every girl. Um, and the younger the kids were, the sex ratio was even larger. Um, but going back to adolescence in the mid 2000s, all of a sudden we saw a flip in the sex ratio from one that favored males to one that favored females. So in what I call the old days, about 70% of the adolescents that we saw were male. Starting in the mid-2000s, it was perfectly flipped. And now everyone sees about 70% males to 30% females. And we actually published the first systematic paper back in 2015, noting this shift in the sex ratio now favoring females both in toronto and a clinic in amsterdam the netherlands and since that paper came out everybody all across the world is reporting the same uh shift to more females than males and it raises a lot of interesting questions about you know how do we explain the disproportionate number of females. The additional complexity in more recent years when it comes to adolescence is that we're now seeing many more teenagers who do not have the classical early onset history of gender dysphoria. And by that, I mean kids who showed signs of gender dysphoria during the preschool years um, or let's say more mild instances of marked gender nonconformity. And all of a sudden we started to see more adolescents, particularly females who didn't have any developmental history of gender dysphoria until around the time of puberty, grade six, seven, eight. And I remember when we first started to see these kids, we didn't necessarily have a label for it, but other than late onset, but more like, wow, this is really interesting. Like, how do we explain this? Um, how do these late onset kids challenge our models of gender development in general. And in 2018, a physician by the name of Lisa Littman published a paper uh, in which she coined the term rapid onset gender dysphoria to try to start to characterize this new subgroup of teenagers that everybody was seeing and you know in my own experience over the last few years i certainly see a lot of adolescent girls and boys who fit the rogd profile and i think it is a new clinical phenomenon 
um, that people are just beginning to try to understand what it's about and what should the best practice treatment be for adolescents who have this very different developmental history compared to the more classical uh, early onset cases. Um, another development that I think is worth commenting on is that, you know, over the years, I think that there certainly have been some people who have been skeptical of the whole notion of gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria as being a mental disorder. Um, I think that's always been the case. Um, and in some respects, gender dysphoria or transsexualism, as it used to be called, pushes people to think about, you know, what are the boundaries of a mental disorder versus something that is simply a normal variation. But when the work groups on the DSM-5 were formulated or were put together around 2008, that was really the first time in 14 years that people could weigh in on should the diagnosis be retained in the DSM. And with the internet, it enabled lots of people to voice their opinions on it. And so my work group, uh, which consisted of myself and four other people plus external consultants, we had to discuss an overarching issue, which is should the diagnosis remain in the DSM or should we recommend that it be removed? Um, and our group recommended that it be retained for various reasons. One argument that one person on the committee made was that if it was removed from the DSM, it would really limit access to care. Mm. So for example, say in the US, why would any private insurance company wanna pay for any kind of treatment if there wasn't a diagnosis? Or in countries like Canada that have universal healthcare, why would the healthcare system wanna pay for anything if it wasn't a diagnosis. And so we recommended that it be retained um, with modifications that we had made to the criteria, et cetera. And um, it's a very interesting debate. So for example, there are some people who say, well, there should only be a diagnosis for adolescents and adults because Children don't require medical care. 
meaning hormones or surgery, whereas adolescents and adults might require those things. And there you can start to see some of the politics. So, for example, um, I don't particularly agree with the argument when it comes to children with gender dysphoria that there's nothing to treat because I think it's certainly possible that a lot of children with therapy can be helped to lose their gender dysphoria so they feel more comfortable with a gender that matches their birth sex. Not all people agree with that. You know, there are some clinicians nowadays, parents and others, who uh, recommend that a young child with gender dysphoria simply be allowed to transition and live socially as a member of the other gender, which is a very different way of reducing their gender dysphoria because it probably puts them on a track where later on they'll require hormones and probably surgery. Um, but the diagnosis you know, continues to elicit lots of debate about what is the best way to help people with gender dysphoria. In more recent years, a further development in the field is that we are probably starting to see more late adolescents and young adults who have gone down a biomedical pathway and then regret that they did that. And some of these uh, late adolescents and young adults have not only had hormone therapy, but also irreversible surgery. And these people are called detransitioners uh, who have regretted the treatment they uh, have had. So there's a lot that's up in the air these days about what is the best way to treat children and adolescents with gender dysphoria. And as I've written somewhere, working in this field is never boring. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I can see why. So I'm going to probably pull out a couple of threads out of what you, what you um, have talked about. And, <clears throat> you know, as we start to wind down here, we'll I'll maybe focus on a couple of other things. So uh, something you said there uh, is suddenly controversial i'll say because it wasn't 10 years ago i didn't think but you said that perhaps the best best path for all gender dysphoric children is not to transition right and that can get you in a lot of trouble these days and i believe it sort of did get you in a lot of trouble if i'm right back in 2015 it's more or less that idea and and i don't want to ask you to talk about something you're not comfortable to talk about but you were, after many years as the head of the CAMH clinic, you were, let's say, defenestrated. Yeah, the, the, the clinic was closed and I was executed <laughs> um, and no longer had a job. And there, you know, I think various factors uh, were part of the story. You know, in retrospect, uh, part of the 
story that I put together is something like this, that, you know, over the years, people would direct criticisms at our clinic, more so regarding children than adolescents, because with the adolescents, you know, we were supporting biomedical treatments in certain cases, which was kind of cutting edge at the time. Um, But there were critics who didn't like the idea that we had this perspective that young children with psychotherapy could be helped to feel better about their gender. And these included local folks in the Toronto area. And when they would kind of lob these criticisms at me or the clinic, I remember thinking, you know, none of these people have ever like contacted me and said, uh, you know, what exactly are you guys doing there? Because over the years, I always invited anybody who wanted to come to the clinic to see what we did. Um, they were welcome. And many people from all around the world would come and visit the clinic sometimes for like three months, six months, a year. So I think my view at the time was I'm going to just ignore these people because a, they've never met me. They've never spoken to me directly in their life. And so I just kind of let it go prior to 2015 the child psychiatrist I'd been working with for 40 years, Sue Bradley, had retired. And she eventually was replaced by a a junior psychiatrist. Bradley had a lot of status in the Toronto child psychiatry community. She was the head of the Division of Child Psychiatry at one point for almost 12 years. I think that as I look back on it, her retirement left me and the clinic more vulnerable and it co-occurred eventually with a change in some of the administrators in the child program. And one person who stepped down had been supportive of us since the mid 1980s was no longer involved. And I've thought in retrospect when local activists came after the clinic in late 2014. I've thought about if Bradley and this other administrator were still there, it would have been shut down immediately. But I think that, you know, as I reflect back on it, I was an early example of cancel culture that some of the administrators wanted to be seen as politically correct and fashionable. And there was nobody effectively there to push back on the position that they were taking. And, you know, that it led to an external review, which at the time, as it was taking place in 2015, I think we were of two minds, either we're going to just be found guilty of some misdemeanors and some changes would be made, or 
the external review was basically a setup to close the clinic down for political reasons. So an external review happened. Uh, one of the external reviewers was a child psychiatrist who I had known for many years, who used to refer patients to the clinic. And then the other one was from Eastern Canada. We've talked about that person in the past, but no need to mention the person's name. Mm -hmm. And as this review went on, at one point we were promised that we would get to see a copy of the external review before any final decision was made. That never happened. I was only shown the external review on the day that the clinic was closed and I was fired. And I remember when starting to read it, there were some egregious errors in it, <clears throat> including certain accusations about how I treated a particular patient who, as it turned out, was never a patient of mine. And I realized at that moment, there was no point in even saying anything. And then uh, I was informed, well, the program is moving on. We're not going to have the clinic. Therefore, we don't need to have you. And I was offered a taxi to go home in, but I had my car in the parking garage. So I was walked to my car. And that was after how many, how many years there had you been there? Well, I started as a graduate student in 1975. So, so it was 40, 40 years. 40 years you got walked to your car. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I consulted with a lawyer who was very good. And we did file a lawsuit against the Center for Addiction and Mental Health and one of my ex-bosses. You could only name one person in the lawsuit. So there was the hospital and and this this one boss. So it went through a process. There were attempts at mediation, which didn't really go anywhere. The financial offer was not particularly acceptable. And so we wound up in the summer of 2018 having a final mediation which was not successful and by the end of the summer we were going to be going to court in october and right before that long weekend at the end of august the CAMH faxed my lawyer a considerably higher financial offer which wound up being around $545,000 plus they paid all of my legal fees, which came to around 175000 which seemed like a reasonable offer. Plus, I had non-financial conditions as well, including that the hospital publicly apologized for a particular comment that was leveled against me and the CAMH agreed to my, all of my non-financial conditions as well. So mm -hmm. I settled in the fall of 2018 and I should mention one thing, which was a U.S. journalist by the name of Jesse single accidentally stumbled across my story 
right at the beginning of 2016, uh, a few weeks after the clinic had been closed. And he did this incredible investigation, including tracking down the patient who claimed I had said something about them and was able to document that it wasn't me by showing this person an array of pictures. And so the person said, oh, it was this person who said this, not Dr. Zucker. And once that became known when he released his story, the CAMH immediately took down the external review from their website. And I think it was his investigation that eventually led to the settlement that I made. Right. Wow. Um, quite, a, quite a story. Um, and, you know, since then, this field has become more and more political in ways that it's hard to imagine. And there are more and more critiques that clinicians are making about certain approaches to treatment. And there's much more debate now about what is the best way to help people. And it's become so political. I mean, we look at what's happening in the U.S. where, you know, the so-called blue states are declaring themselves to be sanctuary states for kids with gender dysphoria. And then you have the red states that are limiting any kind of treatment for minors. And so the politics in this area have become even more and more intense. There are various countries in Europe and Scandinavia and the UK that are having a long relook at best practice approaches. So there's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, <clears throat> I have a feeling we could chat all night about this because it's there's so many threads to pull and there's so many interesting facets. But you, you mentioned how political it's gotten. I think that's probably a good place for us to sort of wrap up. And uh, I, the reason that I wanted to get you, Dr. Zucker, uh, particularly is that, um, you know, you've been in this for, for 50 years now. You have this broad perspective, I think, makes your makes you the right person to come to our conference uh, to leave the politics aside and just talk about what what is the science here? Because no matter what somebody's politics, uh, these are people who are in distress and they need help. And I think we have to figure out the best way to do that without, without letting politics sway us too much in one direction or the other. With that, I'll kind of, I'll kind of tentatively wrap up unless there's anything else you want to mentioned before you go uh do you want to give us a hint about exactly what your talk will be about i know i imagine you'll cover some of this that we talked about but could i call my talk something like the science and politics of gender dysphoria colon my romance with cancel culture or something i, I want to put cancel culture in there L so I'll, I'll think of a little title tonight and send it to you Okay. Well, listen, I, I've enjoyed speaking with you tonight and I'm really looking forward to you coming out. We're just a, a little over a week away from everybody gathering in Bedeck. And I know there's a lot of people who are very excited to hear you and I've, you know, booked for the conference specifically to hear what you have to say about gender dysphoria. So thanks again for agreeing to come. Yeah, thanks.
See you soon. Okay, take care. Bye.